Welcome to the Lifting Lindsay podcast. So today I have a treat for you. I have Adrian Chavez on here and I'm really excited. Adrian, I'm going to have you kind of introduce yourself, your background, and then I'm just going to hit him with all of the big questions like Pop-Tarts, how <laughs> awesome they are, all the good things. Like, <laughs> I don't know, we're going to dive into nutrition and food and the fear mongering that's going on. And I'm just really excited to hear what he has to think about everything. Yeah. So um, a little bit about my background. I have uh, I have a, a PhD in nutrition and health promotion. And I got that after um, a master's in exercise science, a bachelor's in exercise science. Um, I, I just became fascinated with nutrition during my master's degree. I had a health issue myself that I pretty much fixed with nutrition. And I read a bunch of stuff online and I realized like there is so much misinformation all over the web uh, around this topic. And truly, it was that time uh, it's a long time ago, over over a decade ago, where I in my head um, and I actually told some people this too, like I'm going to start I'm going to create a website or, or put out free content like this. that's actually reliable and that people can trust because. Uh, I did a lot of really dumb things during that period of time. Uh, a lot of things that I uh, definitely regretted after I learned the science of this topic. And, um, you know, in my early 20s, I did detoxes and fad diets and elimination diets. And none of it really, you know, worked for me. And I spent so much time and energy on, on all of the wrong things, really. And as I learned more and, um, you know, finished my PhD, uh, that was about seven years ago. Since then, um, I actually did a postdoctoral fellowship, which is like more research in another university. Um, and after that, I've been working with people. So like coaching, uh, I do, uh, I've done uh, consultation like for, uh, for big companies, like research consultation, like helping them kind of develop out some of their uh, backend scientific research and then also do um, like group programs and things like that. But I've been putting out a lot of content online for the past five or six years because, you know, just trying to um, do what I initially got into this field for is really to help educate um, the masses, the, the average person with quality information, because the same issue exists uh, that existed back then, except it's multiplied dramatically, <laughs> is that back then there was a couple of sites that were putting out information that was really sketchy. Now, anybody can jump on Instagram or TikTok and just start making stuff up. And if they have a six pack and they're articulate, you know, they can be believable. Mm -hmm. So um, my goal with, you know, this this field, you know, in the next couple of years is I really want to build out an evidence based platform where, you know, you go there and you know that everything that's published on that website with regard to PCOS nutrition or IBS nutrition or IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, it's going to be written by an expert and it's going to be something that uh, you know you can trust. And so you don't have to Google around on the web anymore and, you know, run into all these detoxes and supplements and different products that oftentimes are literally just preying on the fact that you have a health condition and you're, you're scared. Mm -hmm. And there's marketers that are out there that know that and that use that information to sell people all sorts of stuff. And my goal is to, you know, create something that uh, helps people get away from some of that stuff. Do you know what? Me and my husband were literally just talking about this, that we live in the, well, we were, we're exiting the age of information, 
we have so much information, so much that it's overwhelming. And he was saying, we're really now entering the age of education where people need to know how to actually navigate through all of this. Because if somebody comes off angry enough or fear-mongering enough around food, people just believe them. And then Mm -hmm. it's this horrible thing where if they have a big following, people just assume that whatever they share is accurate, totally based off of a following. And Mm -hmm. it kills me. Like a piece of my soul just dies when I see that. So I would say that you are not an influencer, but you're more of an educator. And that's what you want to be in this that's exactly what I want to be in this space. Some people <laughs> have called me an influencer now because I'm my social media platform is growing very quickly. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's doing it's growing because I'm educating people about some of this information. And unfortunately, um, and some people criticize me about this, but like uh, part of growing a social media following right now because people aren't necessarily interested in education as much as they should be um, is showing people how they've been miseducated or misinformed. Mm -hmm. Um, So me pointing out various things that are clearly misinformation and and explaining why is the thing that grows my following more than anything else, which is sad to me (laughs) because I wish it was, Mm -hmm. you know, when I'm teaching good information, but, uh, I know this because of working with a lot of people is probably one of the biggest barriers to a healthy lifestyle for many people is the number of false beliefs they've developed around nutrition and around health and uh, the confusion, the overwhelm that occurs as a result of people trying to, like you said, take in information from every source. And I hear a lot of people say that, well, I want to hear all sides of the story. The reality is, you're not hearing all sides of the story. You're hearing a lot of BS and then probably some good information. And if you try to assimilate all of that, you're forever going to be confused because you're trying to Mm -hmm. assimilate someone's information who's telling you that carbs are the devil um, to someone else who's saying, hey, if we just focus on energy balance, that's the way to manage your your, um, body weight and and make sure that you lose weight. Um, And trying to assimilate both of those ideas. If you're following people who are telling you both of those different messages is really challenging. And so what ends up happening is um, either you're confused or a lot of times people get caught into this rabbit hole of misinformation where if someone told them carbs are poison, they believed it because the person was wearing a white coat and they had doctor before their name. And that person now doesn't listen to anyone else who says anything otherwise because they really believe this person and they're just completely misinformed. There's a lot of camps of individuals who are extremely um, bought into different, you know, dietary approaches. And it's, it's largely based on emotion in, in the way that it was presented Um, A lot of times people are telling stories around certain things that are very convincing. If someone tells you that, you know, our ancestors used to eat this and this is, um, that's why we should do exactly this because that's what our ancestors used to do. 
that sounds, it makes sense. Like, sounds like it makes sense. But the reality is our ancestors lived to 40 and they didn't have to worry about mm-hmm. heart disease and cancer. And they just ate whatever they could eat to not die. Yeah. And they're not they telling that, that side of the story. Because that side of the story isn't as exciting. It isn't, you know, it doesn't conjure up the feel-good emotions that, that uh, the other side of the story brings up. And so there's a lot of people using this type of storytelling um, in order to, to help people or to get people to, like, buy into this dietary pattern and we got to get away from that <laughs> like you have yeah. to really pay attention to who's telling stories versus who's saying hey look this is what we know about these foods there's a lot of science at this point um and and there wasn't 20 years ago this is a big deal is 20 years ago 30 years ago we didn't have that much information about nutrition and how it impacted our health now the the nutrition science has basically expanded by a thousand times in the last 30 years to where we have detailed data on what happens if you eat butter instead of canola oil, or if you eat a bar of chocolate every day, what happens to your health? There's studies that are being published and conducted daily. There's hundreds of studies, thousands, hundreds of thousands of studies available online that have been published over the last 20, 30 years that have tested almost every possible scenario of that we can think about nutrition and have reported information on it. And that's what I mean by, you know, science and evidence-based you know, nutrition is we need to be basing our choices off of the information and the science that's been done and applying that in the best way that we can to our lives. And I know some people are listening who are going to say, but science is corrupt because you've heard that story again, you've heard that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's not a true story. There's like, if you go in, I, I got a PhD. I was planning to basically be a nutrition professor, but I realized I can reach more people online. And mm-hmm. like, these people are not making money. They're not making a lot of money and they're not being sponsored by anyone. All the, almost all the research is being funded by the government, not by food companies or pharma or any of that. It's all government funding. It's all decided by, you know, other experts in the field. It's a high, it's a process that has such a high level of integrity. Yet you have influencers saying science is corrupt because that's how they make money off of you. If they tell you that science is corrupt, they can make up whatever they want and they can convince you of anything without having to show data. And then when someone does show data, they say that data is not accurate because science is corrupt. It really creates this situation where... They can they can now become the arbiter of information as opposed to us collectively uh, developing information based on a process, which is science is just a process of of learning and, and building a knowledge base. It's not, you know, this this corrupt entity that, that individuals who have an agenda will, will sometimes uh, sometimes discuss. No, that's, that's a great point. There's so much to unpack there too. But the great thing about like there, because there are studies that are poorly done and there are studies, I mean, that's, that's just a reality, but the great thing about it is they're out there and we can see the methods and we can read through to see for ourselves of, okay, there were some gaps there and, and we need further 
research on this. We need further studies to fill in those gaps. And then we collectively look at the information. I think that there's a problem too with a lot of people grabbing one study mm-hmm. and just blowing it out of proportion, right? Mm-hmm. So I think something that you you touched on is the stories So I have Hashimoto's and a lot of times when people hear that, they instantly, oh, well, I have Hashimoto's too. What should I do? I don't, I don't know what you should do. You have your own body. You actually Mm -hmm. have your own environment that you have created for the past six, 10 years to put your body in this certain environment where it's going to react to things. So it's interesting. My mom has Hashimoto's. She cannot eat gluten. Okay. So, cause that often people are like, oh, Hashimoto's no gluten, no dairy. Um, but when I get my blood work done and even going off of how I feel gluten and dairy actually don't affect me, mm-hmm. but yet they affect her. So yes, it is wise for her to know herself and her body. Right. But we want these stories of you went off of gluten, then I need to, well, or we could be a little bit more and of one, like maybe just like individualize this to you and your body and how you react and really focus more on that, right? Because yes, there are people who are allergic to these things and they should stay away from them, but it doesn't, it's the same. Sorry, I don't mean to like and ramble, no, but no, that is uh, what you're saying is, is exactly right. And, and a lot of people use their story to kick off whatever it is that they're promoting. And like, yeah. for example, there's a a protocol called the autoimmune paleo protocol or autoimmune protocol. Uh It's like a completely restrictive diet. I've spoken about it on other large podcasts before, but that, that, that is literally just this person, the person who created it. If you listen to her on podcast, cause I just did some research on figuring out why people were doing this because it made no sense to me. Um, You hear her talk about it and this is just what she felt good on. And then she made up stories about why it was like beneficial. And so she found a reason why she doesn't like legumes, but she has no idea what she's talking about because she's a biochemist with zero training in nutrition. So I know why she does better without beans. She doesn't understand it. So she tried to come up with an explanation for it that's wrong. And she's telling other people to not eat these foods based on a wrong mm-hmm. explanation that she came up with because she was trying to explain what she felt. And that's where it goes back to the most diets or people just doing something, feeling a certain way, and then trying to come up with the justification for why they felt that way. As opposed to, as you like what you mentioned, the gluten, um, there is science on that. Like there is a study where they took women with Hashimoto's They put one group on a gluten-free diet and the other group didn't go on a gluten-free diet. And the women on the gluten-free diet had a marginal improvement in in, uh, antibodies, in in thyroid antibodies. If we took that information and we looked at individual responses, we would probably see that some individuals had a large response. Most people had none. And those individuals who had the larger response were individuals who probably have some underlying celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And when you take, so some people who might look at that study and say, everyone has to avoid gluten because it improved their, their thyroid antibodies marginally. 
but someone who actually understands the literature in a much deeper way and who studies this topic. And this is why like nutrition, unfortunately, like nutrition has to be a PhD, like in my opinion, like to, if you, if you want to speak to different um, health topics in this way, like it has to be that level of depth because mm-hmm. you're almost operating as a doctor, but you're, what you're using is not medication it's food and you have to understand all of the different inter- interactions with food and the needs and the, the different nutrients that someone might be deficient in with different conditions and the level of complexity that that requires, requires a long time of study in this specific topic, which even RDs registered dietitians mostly don't have. And, and oftentimes they fall for a lot of misinformation online because they don't get any training in reading research and interpreting research and staying up to date with research. So what they learned 12 years ago in school is completely irrelevant now. Like not irrelevant, but like largely has changed because of what I mentioned, the information on nutrition has increased so dramatically over the last 10, 20 years. And, and so, you know, we, we, and, and this is the hard part is like, interpreting science is hard. And so this is why it's really important to have a couple of sources of just people that for each condition, like, like I will, I, I can talk about Hashimoto's a little bit, but if someone asks me a question about Hashimoto's or reaches out to me to work with me, I'm referring that person. And I know this condition better than almost like I'm the 99% of people I can, I can speak about nutrition in this way uh, with these individuals but I would still refer someone to someone who that's all they do because that's how complicated nutrition really is. And we are drawn to simple answers. And that's where someone says gluten is bad. And it's easier for us to, to understand that as opposed to listening to someone who's saying gluten might be bad for some people, but may not be for others. And that's how you can tell the difference between someone who is actually putting out good information that is more science-based. They're always going to say, but maybe possibly this study (laughs) showed, but you know, there's always going to be a little like context added. Whereas individuals who are putting out misinformation are purposefully not doing that because it's more attractive for them to say, you know, sugar is poison or sugar is as bad as cocaine or seed oils are poison or seed oils are inflammatory. If you make those claims, especially on social media, the way that things work, me saying seed oils are inflammatory is going to get someone's attention over let me talk to you about the pros and cons of seed oils. Like if, if I say that, it's, I'm going to get 50%. So my, all of my highest engaging posts on social media are the ones where I fake, like I'm going to tell people that something's killing them. Like I have one where I say, here are the 13 most inflammatory foods. Yes. And then I, say, I saw kidding. that let me, one. Let me explain what inflammation is. That's my highest performing post ever. The next one behind that is here are five foods I would never eat. That's my second highest performing post. We have to avoid that type of information like the plague. It's BS every time. And 
so many people are like that's what is drawing people in because from a psychological standpoint like we get motivated by fear um and, and that just like really draws us in but that should be it should be the other way around for for anyone who's listening to this when you see someone say this is poison or five things i would never eat or seven most inflammatory foods that should be an automatic shut off unfollow not going to listen to this person because they're trying to use fear in order to manipulate you in some way. They're not educating you. It's manipulation when they're using fear in that way. It's not education. And then what happens is you internalize that fear. And now you go to a kid's birthday party and you have a piece of pizza and you feel horrible about it because someone told you that this was, you know, whatever was in there causes cancer and is going to cause all this inflammation. And you have these warped ideas of what a pizza does to you. Like, you're yeah. going to be okay. Like one little slice of pizza or one pop tart a couple of times per week literally will have almost zero effect on your long term health as long as other pieces are in place because nutrition altogether is maybe 20, 30% like of our overall, you know, health. And it's probably one of the most powerful things that we can do. That's why, you know, I study it and I'm, I'm fascinated with it. But a lot of us over, over um, estimate or over, overplay like what, what nutrition, like I get questions like, did nutrition cause my um, arthritis? No, like it, it didn't. It's a combination of you know, genetics and, and other factors, stress, lack of sleep, lack of exercise. There's so many other things besides nutrition. But sometimes people get hyper focused on nutrition because if if the messaging that you're getting is this is going to kill you and this is going to kill you, that's all you're going to think about. And you're going to be so worried about avoiding these deadly ingredients that you're not you're going to not do some of these other healthy habits in many cases like most of these people who are saying that stuff don't exercise like like makes no sense like this you know what's going to kill you not exercising and a lot of these people who are doing this <laughs> don't exercise like let's focus on the things that matter first and i'm not saying like sometimes some of these ingredients aren't the best thing to be eating but but mm -hmm. if that's the way that you're taking in your messaging it's going to create a horrible relationship with food and it's not actually based on real information. It's based on someone trying to get your attention by scaring you. And now you're internalizing all these false beliefs, being afraid of food and putting into like being anxious about it, which is worse than just eating the food. That's so good that you bring up that psychological effect of the food fear mongering, I believe does more damage in the end than good because it's not just I, it's so important for people to understand that look we have a we have a certain food culture around us we just do and so wouldn't it be better to educate people on how to safely maneuver around the food culture that we have versus just teaching that literally everything is bad. Because if you follow these people who are constantly using these tactics, you are left with eating nothing. Like literally, like fruit is bad, you know, 
rice is bad. I mean, you look at these countries that are meat predominantly eating rice and I'm just like, yeah, meat's bad. Everything is bad. To the, like broccoli is bad. Like all of, I mean, they can name off all these reasons why you shouldn't be eating beans or nuts or whatever. And I'm just like, I am left with nothing, like nothing. So I would rather learn how to maneuver in a very healthy way where I can still participate to some degree. I mean, already people look at me and they think I eat, I don't, well, most people think I eat salads and I'm like, I don't know when the last time I had a salad was. Not that salads are bad. It's just they they think somebody is fit and healthy. You eat like a rabbit. You eat just salads. And I'm like, no, I, I, I know how to be able to healthily enjoy whole foods 80% of the time. And then 20% of the time I can safely utilize fun foods. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I feel the healthiest now that I've learned these techniques than I have any other period of my life. But you see, I was raised in a home and surrounded by people who are constantly like, oh, we need to stop eating sugar. We need to stop eating this. We need to stop eating that. And it's funny because they're constantly chasing health and fitness. And I'm over here eating my Pop-Tart and they're like, well, how come you can eat all that? Well, I'm not always eating this. It's just you're seeing. Sometimes I like using, Adrian, I'll let you know and I'll let you in on a little secret. Sometimes I like eating Pop-Tarts merely for the shock factor. I want people to know that I'm eating healthy 80% of the time, I can enjoy a cookie without it destroying my mental health, right? I can eat a Pop-Tart. I posted um, yesterday, so I go play basketball on Sundays and I get donuts with my son. I've been doing that for, since he was really like two, I think. Um, And I posted that yesterday and multiple people reached out to me and they were like, thank you for posting this. Like, I just... It, it helps me to see stuff like this because they're just it, people are creating fake personas. Like these influencers are eating the, most of these influencers are influencers are eating the stuff that they're demonizing behind the scenes. They just don't show it, and they're still eating. These I've things. wondered about that. They I'm are. like, how I do you not get look, that? Yeah. To a certain extent, most of them are. They're they're only showing what they want to show, and the way that a lot of them eat, like they would be in incredible shape or really like really, really thin the way that they pretend like they eat. It's, uh, it's no, that most of them are lying about what they say they're eating because it's part of the brand. It's part of the personas to make you Mm -hmm. think that, you know, this is, they're perfect and and you got to strive to achieve that. It's just not reality. Like, like you said, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties. I'm, pretty much in the best shape I've been in my life. Like, and I've always been super active and, uh, and in my twenties, I did all this crazy stuff. And like, I'm so much better off than I was in my mid twenties. Like, and, and it's because I stopped focusing so much on all these crazy diet stuff and started focusing on other aspects of my health and loosened up on nutrition because I used to just, I, I lost a bunch of weight cause I wouldn't eat processed food. And for me, I'm, you know, I need 3000 calories a day. You can't get that without adding some processed food in or you're going to just be... It is true. That is so true. Like, yeah, for me, like I, I'm active. I play basketball. I run. I lift. And like, 
I would, I lost a bunch of weight and got injured more. Like I was just had less muscle mass was lost strength because I couldn't eat processed food. And, and now that I like include a healthy amount of processed food, I'm in better shape, feel better, get injured less. And I'm 10 years older. I jump higher. I run faster. Like I'm, I'm in better shape in so many ways. And it's also because I focused on other aspects of my health as well. I started stretching more instead of being hyper-focused on nutrition. I started doing things for my mental health instead of being hyper-focused on nutrition. I started focusing on my sleep more instead of being hyper-focused on nutrition. Um, Because I think a lot of people, and I see this a lot, where if you get into this fear-mongering where you're chasing all this perfect, you're constantly chasing a perfect diet, it has to take up a lot of bandwidth. And your nutrition cannot take up a lot of bandwidth. If it's taking up a lot of bandwidth, it's taking away from other things that are also important. Your family, your sleep, and, and other fact, exercise, like these things all need to be balanced out. And in order to do that, nutrition can't be everything. It can't be something that you're constantly having to rethink and change your strategy. And if you're doing that, it's going to take too much bandwidth to be able to actually be promoting your health in the way that you're you're hoping it will um it has to i mean at first it takes a little bit of time to get into habits and that type of thing but yeah after a couple of months you should be in a groove in a routine it shouldn't be something that is just constantly what do i do next do i need to go on another detox do i need to cut carbs this week do i need to do this like if you learn about nutrition you learn how to build some good habits around it all that goes away. And, and that, yeah. that I think is the, the thing that I love doing with clients. Like, cause I work with a lot of people who have been dieting their whole life and then they'll work with me for three months and they're like, the, the biggest thing I got out of this was I don't have to think about nutrition all the time anymore. Like I can just awesome. eat and be happy and, and enjoy it and yeah. know that I'm doing the right things. And that, that I think too many people are, are not working with the right people in order to get because working with a quality, you know, practitioner, nutritionist, personal trainer, coach, that should be what you get out of it. Three or six months of working together, and now you feel confident with what you're doing, and you just mm-hmm. got to maintain it because that's that's where the real uh, benefits lie. Isn't just doing the same stuff for the rest of your life. <laughs> like I, I've been lifting for 17 years now. I'm stronger than I've ever been. And I train less than I ever have. Like I barely, I, I don't have no structure whatsoever. I just go into the gym and do what I want to do. But I've been doing it for so long that the benefits add up. And that's where I say like everyone, people keep changing the strategy and they're uncertain. And there's never that compound effect of continuing to, to ex, you know execute those same habits over time. That's where the real value lies. And you don't get there if you're constantly grabbing at different places and hoping for this new method. It's finding the right method that works for you and just doing it for years. And and maybe you're not going to see the three-month results that you would have hoped, but you'll see the one-year results that you couldn't even believe were possible. And beyond that, you know, two, three, five years, like I never thought that I would be in my mid-30s able to you know, physically perform the way that I do because I was, you know, I was an athlete growing up. I was a pretty good basketball player and, and 
I'm almost as athletic as I was at 17 when that's that was my life. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it blows my mind that that's even possible, but it's just compound habits over time have taken care of my body <laughs> better than I knew was possible. And I, that that's what I just want to see more people do this. Like, yeah. just find the right lifestyle and keep, just stick with it. And that, that'll, I mean, the, the results that people will see after one, two, five years is beyond what most people even think is possible, but it's, it doesn't happen overnight. And I, so two things that you brought up, one, um, it, it takes years and it's the compound effect. It really is. That is so powerful. I had somebody message me, I think it was yesterday or the day before, and she was saying, you're this picture and this picture. I'm not a huge fan of using before and after pictures because I feel like I'm just, I'm always going in some aspect of my life going to be a work in progress. There's, mm-hmm. there's no end date. I just love the day to day. I just mm-hmm. love it. I think it's so fun. I love showing up and trying to be a little bit better than I was yesterday. Anyways, she was, she was saying, so in the before and after picture, how long was it before then? And she's like, I just really want to, I want to know how fast I can get this. And I said, years, years, it's years, years, and then add on years and then add on years and then add on years. I know you want to hear 30, 60, 90 days, but it's not days and it's not months, it's years. And it's that compound effect. It's not that one pizza. Yeah, there's a compound effect of eating that for every meal, every day over years. Obviously, we see that compound effect here in the United States where we're like on average putting on two pounds of weight a year, right? While losing muscle mass too. So it's like, yes, we're seeing that negative compound effect, but you can change that. You can change that in your own life and switch that. And then I also loved what you said about it's not health. People, I just feel like they forget what health really is and that it's not just what we take in with nutrition, but it's the daily movement of our body. And it's also what we take into our mind and what's, what we allow our mind to focus on and think about. And if nutrition is literally all you can think about, then you've lost health. You've lost overall health. You've lost healthy relationships. You've probably lost, well, you've lost a healthy relationship to food. You in And in so doing, you've lost a healthy relationship to yourself. So you have not achieved health by becoming obsessed and an extremist. Mm-hmm. And I really liked, oh, how did you phrase it? You, you did a, um, if a large part of your identity is built around what you eat, oh, yeah. this is a post from the other day, and you feel compelled to convince others to adapt to your way of eating, you might be part of a diet cult. And you know, I, I use different nutritional methods with people, but oftentimes I'll talk about counting macros or counting calories. And, and one of the things that drives me nuts actually is when people say, I track macros because it's a lifestyle. And I'm like, Hmm, it's a lifestyle to constantly like weigh Every single thing. Now I lift weights because that's a lifestyle. That's a lifestyle. I can maintain that my entire life. Yeah. But tracking every single thing before it enters in your mouth, I'm 
not sure that's a lifestyle. And I'm not sure that, I think it's a tool that we use appropriately. I think everything within nutrition needs to be viewed that it's a tool that we use appropriately. Speaking of tools, I want you to talk about the continuous glucose monitor. I'm totally f- switching yeah, gears on you no, here. Let's talk about But I do too. want to talk about that. Okay, yeah, so just, that. I'm going to let you free with that one. Yeah, you so continuous glucose go. monitors, if you haven't heard about them, are these devices that people put on that measure the glucose and it measures like every five minutes or every one minute or every two minutes and it's telling you your glucose levels in your blood throughout the entire day. A lot of influencers are promoting these devices as a way to manage your nutrition or lose weight. And these companies, the companies that originally developed these, they developed them for type 1 diabetics and also for research purposes. They are life-changing tools for type 1 diabetics who need to um, administer insulin to themselves based on their glucose levels. So someone who doesn't have a pancreas, they have to monitor their glucose levels to basically do the job of their pancreas by putting insulin into their body because they have a serious medical condition that uh, that compromises the, the function of their pancreas. What companies did was they realized that they could sell more of these if they figured out ways to market them to consumers. And the way that these companies always work, all these medical device companies and lab testing companies, is they they sell through influencers who don't understand what they're promoting oftentimes. These glucose monitors, yes, they're looking at blood glucose throughout the day. And that can be an important or it can be a useful tool in some cases. But the reality is that if your blood glucose is not managed well, that will show up in the standard lab test that you get from a doctor, an HbA1c test that costs like seven bucks. These monitors are 300 bucks a month, about like it depends on the monitor. So if someone convinces you to spend $300 a month and, and they have a coupon code, they're getting a good portion of money from that. And then the company is making a lot of money from that. And they're doing it based on hyper focus, getting you to hyper focus on one risk factor, which would, if it was out of range, would show up on a standard lab test that costs almost nothing. And so what a lot of these influencers are doing is saying, hey, you need to focus on you know, avoiding blood glucose spikes. And none of that stuff has been shown to matter in any research study where you know, someone has HbA1c that's normal, but it, their blood glucose going up 50 after a meal is a bad thing. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That is how your body transports energy to the places that it needs to go. And eventually your body's going to have to transport that glucose and put it somewhere anyway. It, it just, these, these um, fluctuations throughout the day are not something that we have to hypermanage. I, one of the things that I mentioned uh, to, on another podcast is this would be like weighing yourself after every meal. After you eat a meal, your blood glucose is supposed to go up. It's supposed to go up. Like the, that's how your body transports energy. If we weighed ourselves after after every meal and we said we want to minimize weight gain from every meal, we would lose weight because we would just eat less and it would force us to like the way to minimize weight gain is to eat less. And that like weight fluctuates just like glucose fluctuates. 
the day-to-day fluctuations are not what's important. It's whether or not the averages are, you know, what the averages are, which is what's tested in the standard lab test. So these are, there's a lot of devices like this, glucose monitor. There's another device that you blow in that claims to measure fat, uh, you know, fat oxidation. And I don't want to explain that one because it's really complicated, but it also is a bad device. Um, there's an, another uh, device, or there, there's a bunch of like microbiome tests where they measure your stool. There's other tests where they do DNA and they tell you they're, they're going to tell you about nutrition. None of these are worthwhile. None of them. Like they're all giving generic information, not based on your actual needs, because your needs are your preferences, your lifestyle, your energy needs. These things are not measuring any of these things. They're not telling you information about any of these things. They're they're just ways to sell medical devices and tests. And these companies who want to make a profit find alternative ways to sell devices that actually had a use in a clinical setting for specific cases. And these these companies said, okay, let's take this technology and, and bring it to consumers and make claims around that because there's not any regulation around this. Like these companies that say they can measure your microbiome by taking a stool test, that's not what they're doing at all. And they're, the information that they're giving is extremely misleading in terms of like, this is what you should avoid. This is what you should eat more of. Like we cannot make those decisions based on the data that they're taking. Um, and there's a lot of companies doing it right now. It's like the thing to do in the marketplace right now. And I see a lot of consumers buying into this stuff and like, goes back to what I said earlier, like spend that money on hiring a coach who can actually help you personalize your nutrition for your needs, for your energy, you know, your energy needs, for your lifestyle, for your preferences. And that's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck as opposed to spending money on, you know, all of these different lab tests and medical devices because uh, these things are I mean it really is just these like people say big pharma is so evil that's what these companies are doing they're they're just t- turning around and, and selling things that don't really benefit people because they're doing it for profit and 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 they're getting influencers to promote these things because the influencers mm-hmm. one just want the money or they don't know any better usually a combination of the two. And, you know, I could promote these things and make a good amount of money on on my social media if I just was willing to mislead people. And unfortunately, that's like the most profitable thing online is, you know, if you're willing to promote these supplements and, and medical devices and testing, it's, that's, it's really profitable. It's easy and, money. Yep. So with that, I just kind of want to touch on that. I, um, and let my listeners know, I probably get two to three emails or DMs a day asking me to promote these devices. Okay. And, um, about three years ago, I actually did one of the genetic testing. Mm -hmm. That was interesting. And it came back and I literally was laughing laughing over what it was telling me to do. 
It mm-hmm. it told me. I mean, it was so off the mark. I I got it for free, and then they're if you really like it, you can promote it. And I personally don't necessarily believe in that because every single I truly believe that people set their their bodies into certain environments through training and nutrition and even mm-hmm. just like stress levels and everything those all accumulate yes genetics obviously are really important but i mean there are things that aren't even going to be turned on if we don't give it the environment and so why don't we just then focus on that why don't we focus on the things that we can control the big rocks kind of things anyway so i'm i was reading over it and me and my husband are just laughing as it's telling me that i am that it told me that I would have struggle losing weight. And I'm like, what? And it told me like that I needed to run more. It told like, it was the weirdest thing. It gave me some nutrition profiling. And I'm like, this is the biggest load of crap. This is the biggest load of crap. I've also had clients come to me saying, um, you know, I monitor my glucose levels and this is what it's telling me. I'm like, that's great. So you can stop that now. And they're like, well, I haven't been able to lose weight. So I've been monitoring this. And I'm like, okay, so stop doing that. Let's just get the big rocks in place. Let's get you healthy. Let's get you walking out in sunlight, sleeping, eating more whole foods, more protein, lifting weights. Like let's just do those basic things, getting you to be healthy and see what happens. And it's like, oh, interesting how now you're losing weight and you don't have to like prick your finger every single, after every single meal. Like interesting how these things work. Now, obviously I believe, like Adrian says, that there's a place for those things in research with people with, um, with diabetes. Like there's a place, but a lot of it is marketing. Marketing and money. That's what it's coming down to. Okay, I want to um, ask your uh, opinion about a few other things. Um, artificial sweeteners. Okay. Artificial Thoughts, sweeteners. Feelings. So there's there's been some some interesting studies that have come out this year, actually. There's been three studies that have yes, come out this, this year. year. That, yeah, three different studies that have come out this year that seem to suggest that there may be some risk associated with certain artificial sweeteners, um, particularly um, sucralose, aspartame. Uh, I think saccharin's in there as well, and uh, MK. So with this, though, the, a couple of small studies have shown that there may be some slight risk involved with it, with consuming these at higher amounts. But we have to understand how artificial sweeteners are consumed. They're consumed as a replacement for sugar. And when we look at it as a replacement for sugar, it's there's still benefits to consuming an artificial sweetener, even these ones that have shown some negative data. And and when I say negative data, it's like literally slightly increased risk of heart disease among individuals who are consuming these artificial sweeteners in one study, and then a slightly increased risk of cancer. It was like really small um, in another study. And then one other study showed that like blood glucose levels went up slightly higher Mm -hmm. after the meal um, in, in one of the other studies, those were the three studies that have come out that have shown like some negative effects. Um, with that being said, when we use these artificial sweeteners as a replacement for sugar, let's say you were drinking a Coke every day and you don't want to give up your Coke, going to a diet Coke 
is a positive health benefit. Like there is going to be a positive from going from a Coke to a Diet Coke. Going from water to a Diet Coke, maybe not, but going from, you know, (laughs) using it in the context that these sweeteners have been used as a replacement for sugary foods is a positive use of these sweeteners. Now, with that, I wouldn't recommend, you know, just sweetening everything and, you know, drinking artificial, artificially sweetened beverages, like as your, you know, as your entire hydration source, like probably not the healthiest approach, but if what you're using them for, for example, I like to have, you know, certain, like sometimes I like to have the taste of a Diet Coke or some energy drink. Sometimes I'll buy, like, I don't worry about that at all. <laughs> like the, the risk involved with regular consumption is minor and, and I'm, you, I would otherwise be drinking a regular Coke or something else. And you know, that the artificially sweetened beverage is a better alternative. So that's, you know, it, it's a complicated, like I'm going to cover it in a podcast and it's, it's really complicated. Like there's, there's a lot of studies that, that really put a lot of gray area in, in this topic but I wouldn't be worried about consuming them in moderation, um, especially as a replacement or as like a treat for something that would otherwise be sugar sweetened. So in that context, I think it's a healthy thing to consume. If you are replacing sugary beverages, if you're replacing water, drink more water and don't overdo it. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, just don't overdo it overall because the, the risk is likely really low, but um you know, water is good in replacing that with, you know, a whole bunch of, because people, you know, sweeten everything that they drink. And I've worked with a lot of clients Mm -hmm. who do that. And that I don't think is a wise move. Um, But we need more data. There hasn't been any data that says like, oh, this is really risky. It's, hey, this might be a slight, slight risk if you're doing it all the time. Okay. I like that. And I like the context that you use that too, because there are times when I'm starting with a client and we may use like a sugar-free syrup for a while. But I usually tell them once we move out of a calorie deficit and we're sitting at maintenance and we're learning uh, intuitive, mindful eating approaches, I usually am telling them, okay, we're stepping away from the sugar-free syrup. Like you don't need that now. Now you're eating at maintenance Now you can learn to incorporate just some regular maple syrup, just a tablespoon on top, and that's going to be fine. So sometimes I think that there can be, like you said, those benefits of of utilizing them uh, just kind of for a strategy to get into a really healthy place because compliance in a calorie deficit is the thing that kills everybody. Like that's why they don't work. That kills them. So if we can find ways to keep them compliant... And another thing too is if it's not giving, I mean, some of them do give people gas. If it's not giving you that reaction and you're fine, then use it for that short period of time. And um, and then in your lifestyle approach, I would agree that it's just, we use it every once in a while kind of thing. So I, I don't know. I may use. Group. I forgot that you mentioned that. That's the other place that I eat some. But like for me, it's because if I'm eating pancakes, like, I don't need an extra 27 grams of sugar, whatever it would be if I put on like a whole couple tablespoons of sugar or of syrup. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so and this is where when it when we mentioned context um replacing uh sugar for artificial sweeteners in that way seems to be a beneficial health like there, there's a positive to doing that um and, and so and again goes back to the energy needs because if i just got off a long run like or something like that like i'm gonna have the syrup because but but like yeah. Yeah, yeah. understanding how to make it fit within your energy needs because like normally i have pancakes with eggs and other stuff and you know that's going to be if i did the syrup it would add an extra you know 100 150 calories or whatever that would take me over of what i needed for that for that meal or for that day so i mean again context with everything mm -hmm. if it's causing you to eat too many calories um and you can replace that with something that's has some sweetener that's zero calories um overall that's probably going to have a positive effect on health as opposed to eating too many calories every day yeah yeah that makes sense i love it okay one other thing that i wanted to ask you about um the organic thing everybody is always talking about how organic is quote unquote better. Uh, that's also a big marketing thing. <laughs> we A lot of people don't realize, but like the organic label is, I mean, it's a big marketing uh, ploy overall. I mean, there, so when we compare uh, with scientifically, when we compare, you know, organic versus non-organic food, organic food tends to have slightly higher nutrient content. Like sometimes it'll have, you know, 7% higher vitamin C or, 12% higher vitamin A. And a lot of that's because um, the lack of pesticides exposes those plants to more, uh, more outside stressors or, or the, the less pesticides and less effective pesticides exposes that plant to more outside stressors from like bugs and, and um, you know, different things that can cause disease in those plants. And that stress increases the nutrient value of those plants a little bit um, because stress um, and I'm not a plant person, but I read about that, like putting plants under stress increases their nutritional composition in many cases. Um, so like putting grapes under like high levels of UV light can increase the amount of resveratrol that they have and other things like that. Um, so that's where the, the explanation is that organic foods can sometimes have slightly higher nutrient content. They do have sometimes less pesticides. But a lot of people have the misconception that organic food is pesticide free and it, they're just using organically approved pesticides. And oftentimes they're using these pesticides in higher amounts than what they would need to use for a non-organic pesticide because it's not as potent. So they have to spray more of these organic pesticides. And so maybe you don't have the non-organic pesticide, but you have three times as much of the organic pesticide. So um, there's been different studies that have been done where sometimes the organic food has more pesticide residue than the non-organic food. In general, the pesticide residue is going to be lower in organic food versus non-organic uh, on the whole. But even in the non-organic food, the pesticide residue is extremely low because the government sets some extremely conservative standards on the maximum allowable pesticide residues in food. So a lot of people think, you know, strawberries get sprayed with all these pesticides and then they go to market and they have all these pesticides on them. Well, the USDA tests these things and they're looking at pesticide levels of different foods in, in, different, um, in different companies that are producing these strawberries and things. They're taking samples from grocery stores 
all the time and they're, they're measuring pesticide levels. And if they're over the limits that have been set and the limits are set based on a thousand times less than what is the minimum amount that causes harm in animal studies. So when we look at a pesticide before it gets approved, the residues have to be a thousand times less than the minimal amount that was shown to cause any adverse reaction. So when we look at like, there's, there's a website, I forget exactly what it's called, but you can look up like how many strawberries it would require to meet like the, the minimum pesticide residue level. That's a thousand times less. And it's like 700 strawberries to, to meet the level that the USDA set that is a thousand times less than what we would know to cause harm. So I say that to put it in perspective, like even on non-organic food, pesticide residues are extremely low. We haven't found any evidence to show that individuals who eat organic food tend to have better health outcomes than individuals who eat non-organic food. There, there's no multiple studies have been done that haven't shown any any outcomes that are different between the two groups. And so this comes down to a decision about grocery budget and your own comfort level at the end of the day. I used to, I thought organic food was the devil. I mentioned I went through some, or non-organic food was the devil. I mentioned I went through some some situations where I, you know, got convinced of some things in my 20s. I would only eat organic food. I would like feel bad when I had to buy non-organic and would like wash it off as much as I could and thought I was going to harm me. And man, I'm so glad I read that research during my PhD because once I started reading that research, I'm like, it, it even took me time to like stop buying organic because I was still kind of scared from the messaging that I had heard. But I mean, I haven't bought, I, I buy almost no organic food now and I have for eight to 10 years now. And um, I'm so happy that I finally got away from it because I, I mean, my grocery budget, uh, it, oh I mean, it, it was double. It got, I cut it in yeah. half by, by deciding that, or by reading this research and saying like, okay, maybe this is not as harmful as I was convinced because I had, you know, the messages around organic food or, or, or around non-organic food is like, these pesticides are going to kill you. They're so dangerous. And, and when you hear that, like it, it can make you feel like, again, what we were talking about earlier, that fear where you have to buy organic food. And for someone who's on a budget, that's going to negatively affect your health in many ways. If you have to double your grocery, if someone convinced you that you have to double your grocery bill to be healthy, and now you don't have money for a gym membership or whatever, like, you know, therapy or a, a personal trainer, or whatever you want, you could have spent that $800 a month that you might be spending on organic food. Um, that that can negatively impact people. So I think putting that into perspective, like the differences are minimal at best. And so if you're paying two or three times more for an organic food, if you just don't care about, you know, the extra cost then fine. But like if you're on a budget and that is a decision you have to make, the non-organic option is perfectly fine and is not any, not unsafe or, or lacking nutrients in any way. And truthfully, the organic option is mostly, mostly when people choose this, it's based on ideals and not like that it's really three times as, as good, you know, to purchase this thing. Mm -hmm. I love it. Okay. Well, I feel like we've, t I could keep talking to you. You're um, a wealth of knowledge and I'm so glad that you, that I had you come on here. 
I'm so glad that my listeners can be introduced to you if they're not already. So where can they find you? Uh, so the best place is on Instagram at Dr. Adrian Chavez. It's D-R period Adrian, A-D-R-I-A-N period C-H-A-V-E-Z. And that's where I, that's my main hub online. Uh, I'm actually relaunching my podcast soon. It's called the Nutrition Science Podcast. Um, I used to publish a whole bunch of episodes, but I didn't go into the level of depth that I want to. So I kind of erased all those and I'm, I'm going to go back and cover the topics one time and, and really go in depth and cover the science. So like what, what we mentioned with the artificial sweeteners, that deserves a long discussion to really understand all of the different nuances. And like you mentioned, some of them cause gas. There's a reason why. And I can talk about, you know, which ones mm-hmm. might do that and, and what if you should avoid those and go into a lot more detail. So that that podcast is going to be relaunched soon. And that'll be a really good resource for a lot of people because I'm going to go in depth on each specific topic and cover all the science in that topic so that you can walk away like, okay, now I know, you know, are eggs bad or not? Like I know what, how to make a decision around <laughs> yeah. this topic. Um, so yeah, that that's going to be another really good place. But Instagram is where, you know, I promote everything in, in the main hub uh, for me online. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. You're awesome. Guys, go and follow him. Um, I'm excited for your podcast. I'm going to yeah, listen to that. <laughs> my walks in the morning, it'll give me something good to listen to. Thank you so much for what you put out into Instagram too. I feel like social media, um, I've, I haven't dived into TikTok. I just can't do it for some reason. <laughs> for some reason, there's like a piece of my soul that's like, don't do it, Lindsay. You're going to sell yourself. Like it's just too trashy. I don't know. I'm going to offend so many people saying that, but I don't know what it is about Instagram, but it's just like, it's the devil. Don't do it. <laughs> I don't know. But um, thank you so much for your clarity of thought, I think that you put out on Instagram, I think extremes are easy. And I think it's easy to get a lot of attention when you're an extremist, when you're, you know, putting out all this fear. And it's hard because I think those of us who sit in the middle, who sit in nuance, who sit in, well, depends, right? That, well, I know you're gonna mm-hmm. not going to like this, but context matters. It depends. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be harder for us uh, for that message to be seen, but I feel like that is a far more important message. And so I love what you put out. Guys, go follow him. He's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Lifting Lindsay podcast today. If you have any questions, feel free to send me a DM on Instagram at Lifting Lindsay. You can follow me there. If you have any questions about my optimized training programs and my training app, you can visit liftinglindsay.com. You can also see my coaching options and apply for the wait list. I will send out a text or an email as soon as there's availability. And it really is first come, first serve. Have a wonderful day. I love you guys. Thank you so much.